will be in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 will be primarily in verses 16 to 23, but let's start from uh, verse 8. So, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to worldly doctrine, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason or uh, reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to worldly doctrine, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that, are, that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this word so that we can have confidence of knowing how to deal with false teachers, that we would not be disqualified because of false claims or false presuppositions, false ideologies that would discredit us from walking happily and holy before you. Oh, Father, help us now. As we come before this text, as we learn the wiles of false doctrines that might be incipient to our own souls, Father, help, help us now that we might look and behold Christ in all of his infinite glory and that by looking to him, we will see and treasure him for he alone is the basis by which we can walk in happy and holy communion with you. Help us, we pray that Jesus be magnified. We ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen. Last time we had finished uh, looking at Paul's call to walk secure in Christ, verses 6 through 15. Christians are to live based on Christ's person and work for us alone. Our passage tonight is grounded in that main point. Since our lives are based on Christ. Therefore, we don't need to live on anything other than Christ. Our passage presents the clearest depiction of what the false teachers at Colossae were spewing. 
though it can be a bit cryptic, we can clearly see that the false teacher's claims undermine the Colossians' acceptance before God through Christ alone. Likewise, there are false claims today that seek to disrupt our walk with God, to disqualify us from being in His presence. But hear this, brothers and sisters. Let no one disqualify you because of bogus claims. That's our main point for tonight. Let no one disqualify you because of bogus claims. In our passage tonight, the Colossians were not to be disqualified because of bogus interpretations, bogus doctrines, nor bogus commands. So, we are not to be disqualified because of bogus interpretations, bogus doctrines, or bogus commands. So, for our first point, let no one disqualify you because of bogus interpretations. In verses 16 and 17, believers are not to be judged by faulty readings of Scripture. The primary focus of Colossians has been on how believers appropriately enjoy the presence of God. By union with Christ, believers can stand before God as holy and acceptable before Him. In verses 6 to 15, our confidence to walk before God was based solely on Christ alone. He alone is sufficient. Therefore, in verses 16 and 17, Paul shows that any other means to be accepted by God, any other means to be accepted by God is false, no, how, no matter how plausible it may seem at first. Paul calls believers not to be judged by food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. With this, we get the first real hint about what the false teachers were spreading. The false teachers were using the Old Testament ceremonial laws to argue for a further or a truer acceptance before God. Originally, the Old Testament ceremonial laws were used to become clean to enter the earthly temple and to remain before God's earthly temple presence. Apparently, these false teachers were using these purity laws to judge or disqualify believers from God's heavenly temple presence, which was ultimately the main focus of both the false teachers and the Christian. If you weren't clean according to the old code, you were still on the outside of God's heavenly temple. The phrase food and drink is a catch-all term, as we know, for the dietary laws that made one clean. The phrase festival, new moon, and Sabbath refers to Israel's holy days and their rituals that they celebrated under the Old Covenant, such as the Passover, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Uz with all their special Sabbaths, such as that we see there in Leviticus 23. But every time that this phrase, this triad of festival, new moon, or Sabbath, or, or maybe a slight augment to those, every time that phrase is used in the Old Testament, it always refers to worship rendered at the earthly temple on those special days, which including fasting and severity to the body. In short, what we are to see is that the false teachers insisted upon preparatory rituals given at the earthly temple to enter God's heavenly temple. But here's the problem with the false teacher's claims. Verse 17, look at that with me. The old ceremonial codes are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
These cleanliness and holiness laws represented what made one worthy to come before God under the old covenants. But they merely pointed to the worthiness of our Christ to enter God's heavenly temple for us. In Hebrews 9, if you would, please turn there with me. Hebrews 9. The author of Hebrews shows that the preparations of the priests, their diets and their rituals that would be held on Sabbaths, they were only for a time. Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the embody and pose, such as those used on those Sabbath festivals. And catch that last phrase, until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, hands, that is not of this creation, so God's heavenly temple, our Christ entered once for all into the holy place. In short, Christ's worthiness in his redemption is what made him acceptable as our mediator between us and God. The ceremonial laws were only a shadow pointing to the one who was truly prepared to come before God, Christ himself. Moreover, not only are these preparatory rituals outmoded because of Christ's worthiness to enter the temple, but Christ is our temple presence. That was the whole point that we've been looking at this entire time in Colossians, that Christ is our temple, and in him we share in that temple glory. So the old ceremonial codes were only for a time until Christ came to show us their true fulfillment. In Christ, we have God's heavenly temple presence and can worship freely. So appeal to these laws and rituals for acceptance before God is illegitimate. They're bogus. There are many foundational problems with the false teachers that we see, that we will see in a minute. But one immediate issue is their reading and interpretation of Scripture. We could call these false teachers biblicists. Biblicist. They artificially strung together biblical texts to prove an umbilical point. The result is that believers were illegitimately disqualified from God's presence, though they were united to Christ. By faith. Likewise, there are interpretations today that seek to disqualify Christians. We said a few weeks back that there are errors that are trying to claw their way into healthy churches. These errors could be broadly defined as neonomianism. It's basically this if you keep or if you obey the gospel, you will remain in God's good graces. Ultimately, if you keep faithful, you secure your own standing before God. You become the source of your hope, which is no hope at all. And the neonomian impulse today is based on a biblicist approach to Scripture. 
They artificially string together texts to arrive to their unbiblical, antichrist, false gospel. They tragically put themselves at the center of the story. So how are we to respond to this very real danger? It's very simple. It's very simple. We need to resist simplistic proof texting in favor of a robust knowledge of the gospel, of God's main story. We must know Christ as the true substance, as God's revelation. If we do not have Christ settled upon our hearts as we approach the text of Scripture, brothers and sisters, see this. If we do not have the gospel rooted in us as we approach the text, we will distort the main story of the Bible to make it all about us. That is what sinners do with the Scriptures. They ultimately make the hero themselves. That's the neonomian impulse. Now, all that means is new law. They basically make the gospel into a new law. If you do good enough, if you keep up, you'll be accepted. But that is a false gospel that we must reject for the salvation of our souls. Brothers and sisters, reject the neonomian, the biblicist approach to Scripture. Christ alone is sufficient to bring sinners before a holy God. Don't go to the Scriptures alone to figure out the Gospel. Don't go alone to the Scriptures to figure out the Gospel. Bring Jesus with you. Oh, brothers and sisters, bring Jesus with you so that you may delve further and further into Gospel riches as you read of Him in the Scriptures. Oh, He's like begging us upon the soul as we, every time that we open up the Scriptures It's like he's walking with us upon Emmaus Road and he speaks words that make our hearts burn for him. Oh, brothers and sisters, we need Jesus every time we open up the scriptures because it's ultimately about him. So then, don't let bogus interpretations disqualify you from God's presence. The true substance of the Bible is the Christ who reconciles. But false teachers had more than bogus interpretations. This brings us to our second point. Let no one disqualify you because of bogus doctrines. You see a theme. Let no one disqualify you because of bogus doctrines. In verses 18 to 19, Paul contrasts the false teacher's claim to enter God's presence with the believer's true acceptance in Christ. In verse 18, Paul continues his plea to not let false teachers disrupt the believer's communion with God. Let no one disqualify you. Let no one disqualify you. The false teachers disqualified others from God's presence by insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Now, what in the world does that mean? Asceticism here means an outward display of piety. Think of the ceremonial fasting that we saw earlier, the the ceremonial fasting under the Old Covenant. But this piety is connected to the worship of angels. This is a very strange passage. This is actually one of the most difficult passages in the entirety of the New Testament. But here's my shot. This means here 
the actual worship of angels, which is idolatry. So here's the question. Why were these false teachers, these self-labeled Torah followers, worshiping angels? Have they not heard the Shema, the Lord our God is one? Well, the answer is found in the next phrase. False teachers disqualified others based upon mystical visions of heaven. It's not quite as clear in the ESV as most of you have, but it's literally, um, uh, let's see here, verse 18, going on in detail about visions. That's literally what it says there is that he entered the things he saw. Talking about the false teachers, that false teacher entered the things he saw. Most likely, these mystical visions were adopted from pagan rites found near Colossae. In pagan rituals, you got an audience with the local deity deity by two rites. First, you had the initial entrance into the temple courtyard. And then second, you enter the very presence of the god inside his temple through a form of charismatic worship through visions. Most likely, the false teachers were just copying and pasting this pagan idea onto the Old Covenant Scriptures. In the Old Testament, angels are depicted as going before God's throne, entering His temple presence, Isaiah 6. So by seeking and worshiping these angels, the false teachers claimed that they could enter fully into Yahweh's presence. As long as you were ceremonially clean, you could enter in to God's presence on the coattails of the angels. Oh, it's brilliant, right? Oh, it's pretty clever. But just like ancient Israel, these false teachers brought pagan ideas into the worship of Yahweh. Moreover, and most scandalously of all, in their view, Jesus simply become the first, is the first stage of coming before God. He's the courtyard, not the real main event. Angel worship is how you really got in before God's presence. And of course, the Apostle Paul was having none of this. He shows that the false teacher's disqualifications showed them to be puffed up. They had a fleshly mind. And these beliefs belong to pagan worship. They're clearly sinful. They were not merely bad readings of the Old Testament, but the false teacher's beliefs impose bogus pagan doctrines upon God's revelation and the Christian faith. Only an arrogant fool would be so bold to mess with God's word. And yet, here are the false teachers and all their vain glory. In contrast to the false teachers' performative piety, their false worship of angels, and their sinful arrogance, their fleshly mind, Paul shows in verse 19 the true reason why believers shouldn't be disqualified from God's presence. False teachers don't hold fast to Christ the head. The head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. You can see the imagery here. It's an organic illustration. Christ being the true source of growth and vitality. In Ephesians 4, we see similar language. If you want to turn there, turn there real quick. Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. We see similar language of this organic illustration. 
We see him, uh, Paul, use language to speak of the church as this living, organic temple. Verse 15. Let us grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, the church, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Each part is working, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. And that last phrase is key so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians 4, 15-16. Implicitly, Paul is restating a point that we saw in, verses two, uh, in chapter 2, verses 9-10 through 10 of Colossians. In Christ, the church is filled with God's temple presence and reflects His glory. And this life that Christ produces is marked preeminently By love. Let me tweet Paul's illustration. Ladies, my wife enjoyed this. And hopefully you will too. Um, I think you will (laughs) yourself. Christ is like a potted plant. (laughs) Christ is like a potted plant hanging high in the heavenly temple. And his church is rooted in him there. And as we grow in Christian love, our vines spill over into this world. By this love, we show the life-giving soil in which we have been planted in heaven. The false teachers puff themselves up to heaven, trying to reach it. But by faith in Christ, believers show that they are already rooted there, showing heaven's glory, showing Christ's glory to this world. Bogus doctrine puffs the proud up to heaven, but true doctrine is about heaven coming down, showing the love of Christ to sinners. And so, brothers and sisters, what bogus doctrines are you giving an ear to? Your ears may never hear an explicit heresy, let's hope. But this is exactly where we need to be careful. False teachers don't always come with a warning label. In fact, false teachers can look more like us and can sound a lot like us, more than we care to admit. And that is why they're so dangerous. But if their teachings, however plausible they may seem at first, if they produce an arrogance or an ungodly despair and your soul flee from them. That is not godly growth. Their lies do not produce the love that Christ's church is to bear. They radiate a vain glory, not true glory. They only spew poison that destroys Christ's church. The false teachers at Colossae taught that the better Christians got full access to God. What? What? Such, what, what, what would such a teaching do in the church? All this did in the church was to produce pride in some and despair in others. The proud thought they were a step above the rest of the church, and the rest of the church was left downcast because they thought they weren't good enough. Pride and despair such as this is not what Christ's gospel produces. So, brothers and sisters, I plead with you. 
Don't be disqualified by the poison of false doctrines. In Christ, you have all that you need. You have no need to impress others, to show them that you are truly spiritual. No. And you have no need to show that you are better than others, that you are more mature, more spiritual. No. When we hold fast to Christ, we grow in true humility, not false humility. In Christ, we grow in love for others, not in self-love. It is only by being rooted in Christ that his love and glory radiates from us. So then, brothers and sisters, let no one disqualify you for bogus doctrine that does not produce this love of Christ. This love of Christ for himself as our only object of worship, but also a love that we have for the rest of the body, the rest of the saints, his church. Oh, brothers and sisters, that is the key litmus test of whether a doctrine is true. Does it spur you on into greater joys and glories in Christ, lifting you high into heaven by his power? Or does it puff you up in pride and destroy others in your wake? That's the key litmus test. And our God sees all of it. So then, the false teacher's claims should not threaten the believer's communion with God. In him we radiate the love of God to sinners. And this truth is a freeing reality to those who hold it. This brings us to our third point. Let no one disqualify you because of bogus commands. In verses 20 to 23, false teachings are not to bind those free in Christ. Verses 20 to 23 are the result of verses 16 to 19. Since we are not disqualified by the false teacher's claims, that means that we do not have to submit to the false teacher's regulations. Verse 20 opens with a conditional statement If with Christ you die to worldly doctrine, meaning the the principles of the old world, the the belief systems of the old world, if you have died, or I could say it another, another way, if you have died to the doctrine that belonged to the old world, that, that's ultimately the, uh, the assumed part there. Paul assumes that the Colossians have indeed died in Christ. As we saw last time, the old man has been circumcised along with the old beliefs and doctrines that cling to him. And if this old way of thinking has been circumcised from our hearts, if we have died to the false belief that we prepare ourselves for God's acceptance, then the question comes, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Why would we submit to rules that are based in an old way of thinking that we have died to, that has passed away? This isn't an accusation, but Paul is warning the church not to submit to rules and regulations that are based on the old man's belief systems. In verse 21, the regulations are artificially imposed ceremonial laws. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In verse 22, Paul says that these laws all perish as they are used. Paul is not referring to the perishing as authoritative scripture, but they perish as improper for the new age in Christ. These laws were only for a time until their 
true, uh, until Christ fulfilled their true meaning. The ceremonial laws belong to the old age to prepare for Christ. But to impose these laws upon believers in the new age is illegitimate. Verse 22 shows further that the false teacher's imposition of these laws was based on human teaching. The church had received God's gospel, that the law has been fulfilled in Christ, but the false teachers warped the ceremonial codes with their pagan teachings. And verse 23 shows what the warping of these scriptures produce. It produced an appearance of wisdom. Their religion was an outward performance that is impressive in its humility and bodily strictures. But the last line in verse 23 is the fatal blow. The false teachers may have had the appearance of wisdom, but their teachings, their commands, are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Christians long to be free from every ounce of our sin. And the false teacher's apparent wisdom suggests that they know how to do that. They are boasting as much. But Paul calls their commands false worship. In verse 22, the phrase human precepts and teachings is an allusion to Isaiah 29. In that passage, Isaiah is dealing with Israel and their failure to render true worship. And so in Isaiah 29, verse 13, Isaiah writes, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And the fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of the wise men shall perish. With Isaiah, Paul is saying that these false teachers' apparent wisdom will perish, is perishing. Their actions and behaviors may seem spiritual or even biblical, but they don't rid rid us of sin. In fact, see this. They produce more sin. They simply hide their their sins behind a veneer of pride that God can see through. Brothers and sisters, our walk with God should produce a humility of heart and holiness of life. That is one of the key blessings of Christ's gospel. That the sin we now hate is stripped more and more from our hearts. That the sin that once bound us has been broken. But in your zeal, in your appropriate zeal to be holier and godlier before your Lord, I give you a caution. Not everything that glitters is gold. Not everything that is assumed as godly within church circles is helpful. In fact, we can promote bogus commands that do nothing for our sanctification. And those bogus commands can take you away from a sanctified heart to a self-promoting heart. Here's what I mean. We all have an idea of what godliness looks like, right? We all have the vision in our head whether it's spoken or or unspoken. 
we all have the idea of what a biblical man or a biblical woman should look like. But too often, this wisdom is made up by us and not revealed in Scripture. Let me tattle on myself. Today, my girls are sick, as you are probably aware. Here I am, a regular preacher in the church, and my girls are sick yet again. My wife and my family aren't dutifully sitting by, writing notes, saying amen, supporting their good old dad. No. Now, I'm a cruel man. I hate when my girls are sick, but not for the reason you think. I hate that I could be seen in any way of not living up to some ideal. I hate the idea that I'm not living up to what is expected of the godly man's house with my wife and children in tow. Now, y'all are probably holier and godlier than I am. You might think to yourself, how that, that's so silly. No one cares. You're right. You're right. But I guarantee you I could find somewhere within your heart, deep down, that you have that exact same impulse. We all have ideas of what is godly. And hopefully that is informed by Scripture. But even the best of us injects our man-made preferences into God's holy commands. But when we distort God's holy law and impose this upon ourselves or even others, watch out. You have a Pharisee in the making. There are times your conscience must be imposed upon by God's word. That is what we are called to as Christians to grow. But we need a gospel-saturated, biblically-based, Christ-exalting reason for any command that we impose. Brothers and sisters, we do not need shoot-from-the-hip sanctification. We do not need shoot-from-the-hip sanctification. Because unless we know this binding, this imposition of our beliefs comes from God's word, artificial commands can quickly become a performance for others in the church. And ultimately, this performance is for either others to accept you or to favor you. And what does this do to your hearts? You know, it puffs up only the proud, but it does nothing to kill your sin or to grow in true holiness. In fact, you're not worshiping God through your self-made rules. Ultimately, you are serving yourself. So, brothers and sisters, remember the gospel. Don't disqualify yourselves or others because of some silly, artificial rule you have made. This is not God's word which sanctified. So stop preaching cliches to your heart to be better, to do better. Brothers and sisters, preach the gospel of Christ that actually sanctifies your soul. Think upon the Christ who saves sinners from the religion of performance. 
Meditate, meditate upon the Christ who alone is sufficient to make us holy before God. Cherish Christ as the wisdom of God that will never perish. By following this Christ, not the one we conjure up, but the one who has been revealed to us in Holy Scripture, by following him, our communion with, with God will deepen as we are sanctified further and further in grace. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, we all have that pharisaical impulse of saying, this is the way I like to do it. But be very careful that you do not become a law upon yourself or others, that you puff yourselves up to heaven rather than Christ's gospel coming down to you in true glory, in true love, true majesty. So then in conclusion, let no one disqualify you for bogus claims. False interpretations of Scripture should not sway the Christian who possesses a true understanding of the gospel, the main story of Scripture. False doctrine produces a pride or despair within the life of the church. But true doctrine displays Christ's love for sinners, the gospel, our doctrine. And illegitimate commands do nothing to rid us of sin. They just produce more sin within us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us cling to Christ. Let us cling to the Christ who is able to save us from ourselves and reveal to us a life that is worthy to live before God. Dear brothers and sisters, hear this final plea. Let no one disqualify you in your walk in Christ, not even yourself. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how much we often just need to get over ourselves. That we need to rest upon your gospel rather than trying to impress others or even impressing you. What a laughable thought to a sovereign Holy Father who looks down upon weak and flailing sinners who need help out of the mire. Oh, Father, help us not to cling to false things, but to be rooted further and further in your word, your gospel, and true holiness, that we might live before you all the days of our lives, rendering true praise, true honor, and true glory to your name. Help us, we pray, to flee from false teachings, from false doctrines, and help us root ourselves in that gospel doctrine that our soul so desperately needs time and time again. Oh, Father, may you be honored and magnified this night, and may you see fit to use this word however you deem right. We ask this in your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen.